we did this? What if we built a streaming service like for ourselves? And people talk about Vessel and how that failed after a couple of years or got acquired and then disappeared. This had been tried before and it never really worked. So if we did something, we'd have to be really careful. Dave Whiskers, musician, videographer, a character in the Patrick Williams universe, and the CEO of Standard, the partner company of streaming service Nivula. How did Dave manage to convince a bunch of creators to come together to take the risk of such an ambitious project? I am Alex, and this is Genesis. You are a person of many hats. There's Dave the agent, there's Dave the videographer, there's Dave the Nivula supreme leader. <laughs> so I am interested to find out how all of this collide today. Now, the question is, when you're meeting someone and you're presenting yourself and presenting what you do for your living, what the heck do you go for? I think you forgot Dave the rock star, Dave the designer. Jesus Christ, Dave you're podcaster. right. I, I got a lot of things going on. It really depends who I'm talking to. Like the context of a conversation informs like what I say. If I'm talking to... Like another musician, I'll you know talk about my musical background and we'll talk music stuff because me doing YouTube just isn't an interesting part of that conversation. If I'm talking to creators, like in the context of a VidCon event or something like that, then I try to frame myself as a creator. I don't like pitching stuff and I don't want to be pitched. Like it's too easy for, if people know who I am, it's too easy for them to like want to be my friend because they might get access to something. So I try to just be like, I'm another creator like you guys. And when Standard was much more in the shadows, that was a lot easier. These days, tricky, but I'm not on camera a ton yet. So I'm still relatively, uh, I get to get to hide out. If I'm talking to people at a party, like if I go somewhere with my wife, it depends if, if I want to engage in conversation, I say talent agent. If I want them to leave me alone, I say I work in education. <laughs> because that's nice and boring. But what it means though is like all of these things, all, all of these different parts of my background and all of these different angles of my job, it means that I get to have interesting conversations with lots of different kinds of people. Put me in any context and I've, I've got a pretty fair shot of having at least a halfway interesting conversation with strangers. Indeed. In fact, I'm kind of curious, especially looking towards your story, because you're one of the more knowledgeable persons that I know about recording and about color grading and about music and about all these things that I just, I've always been a little bit curious about the road of acquiring all those different hats. So I guess um, hopefully we'll find out a little bit about that today. Where were you born? The city, I, I think it's pronounced Papillion, but I think it was originally supposed to be Papillon, which is French for butterfly. It's a little town outside of Omaha, Nebraska, which is right in the middle of the U.S., I was only there for a couple of years, moved to Denver and grew up uh, mostly between Denver and Southern California, which if you're a linguist, you'll pick up pretty quickly. That's like exactly what you would nail my accent down to is Denver and Southern California. Interesting. And I didn't move to New York until about seven, seven and a half years ago. Pretty West Coast. Most of your life you have been uh, yeah, a West Coast person. If you could summarize your early years of life in a concise way. What will that be? <laughs> uh, hectic. I moved around a lot, a lot, a lot. My parents divorced when I was three. And I think we'd left Omaha when I was maybe five. I, I don't remember anything from, from those years. Like just quick little flashes of, of, of memories. Moving around a lot, only child, single mother. It was a lot of her being scrappy 
and you know, taking whatever job she could get, making sure that I was fed because she didn't come from money. She didn't come from a, a, a strong education background. And so it was a lot of hustle on her side. And so it was we'd move to Southern California because that's where she really wanted to be. But then that wouldn't play out very well. And we'd come back to Denver where she had family and could rely on a couple of people. And it was just that that moving back and forth. I never really got to like, put down roots, so to speak. I never attended the same school more than one or two years in a row. I don't have any friends from childhood. I don't remember anybody from childhood. The oldest friend I have is from high school. Even then, I was only at that school for uh, a year, a year and a half, maybe. Childhood, like the early years for me, was just a lot of moving back and forth. I watched a lot of Nick at Night and a lot of TV, and I, I would credit Nick at Night with mostly raising me. My mom was always working to try to keep me fed, and so it was uh, TV and video games and comic books were the, the way that I saw the world. And when I, I think she started studying uh, computer science when I was 13, and she wanted to go get a degree, and she wanted to get a good job. She wound up not sticking with it, but as a part of this, she, she bought her first computer. And so at 13, I had access to a computer. And after a few months of this, and I would play with it every day, but after a few months of this, she went and bought a modem because back in those days, computers didn't have like built-in internet access. This was in the, the early archaic days of the internet where in order to get on AOL, you paid by the hour, which is insane by today's standards. I, I remember getting in trouble a number of times for the number of hours I would spend on AOL, but I was just fascinated by like this machine and its ability to connect me to other people its ability to let me express myself creatively. And even though the, the tools of the day were very much in their infancy, like the, the, the promise of it, I found very compelling. And so for, for me, being this latchkey kid who, uh, you know, I, I didn't really have a lot of close friendships in school, didn't really know how to comport myself socially, didn't really have much of a social life. My whole world was in my head and my imagination reading comics, playing video games, watching TV. And now I had this box that, that sort of gave me a pathway to expressing that creativity and finding social connections that I wouldn't have been able to find before. Given that the internet was such an early part of your formational years, were you at that already point considering some sort of career that involved the internet? I had no idea that there would be a a, such a thing as a career involving the internet. Uh, I was born in 81. So when I was 13, it was what, 94? There wasn't like the dot com boom hadn't even started yet. And this was all very, very new. And I remember when I got in trouble for using too many AOL hours, my mom shut it off. And I was flipping through, uh, they, they, we used to have these things called phone books mm -hmm. where all of the phone numbers used to be in a giant book. And they had, uh, one that was white, which had people in it, and one which was yellow, which had businesses in it. And the the white pages, you never really used unless you need to look somebody up. But the yellow pages you would use to like, if you needed a plumber, you would open it up to the P, plumbers, and you just go through all the plumbers. I opened it up looking for, I think, internet or computer or something. And I found what was called a bulletin board system. Uh. And you could dial this number and your computer could connect to their computers and you would be connected to other local people. And you could leave messages on a wall and go back and read if somebody had responded and, you know, make pen pals this way. And I discovered that one particular bulletin board system had an internet connection and would connect to IRC, which I didn't know what that was at the time, but I would later unlock this whole world of, oh, oh wait, that the person I'm talking to is in Sweden? How the hell did that happen? And the, that, that kind of blew my mind. And I spent so much time playing with computers when I was 16. I wound up living with my dad for a little bit. He was never a part of my life as a kid, but for some reason I decided to live with him. I spent, you know, all of my free time on the computer talking to people because that's how I knew how to communicate with other humans. And I remember one day 
he was he was very angry with me because I'd went I discovered Linux. I went and I bought a book on Linux. It came with a CD to install Red Hat, and like I had to. No, I, I take that back. I wound up going with Slackware because you could install Slackware on the same partition as Windows. So it meant I didn't have to screw the computer up or buy another hard drive. Reading through the book, trying to get it to work, my dad came in. He yelled at me saying that I was never going to make a living sitting in front of a computer all day. <laughs> and I have not spoken to him since I was 17 years old, but I still think of that every couple of months. That's like my strongest memory of my dad is you're never going to make a living sitting in front of a computer all day. Because even at the time, that was such a dumb thing to say. <laughs> And it, it, even then, like it, the, the idea of using a computer to make a living was extremely attractive, but I didn't know what the career was. For me, it was just like, I loved playing with this technology. I loved the way it would allow me to connect to people. And it unlocked new and interesting things. When I was in high school, I was a photography student. That's the, the main thing that I studied. I, I studied photography at college level. I didn't get terribly good grades, but mostly because I just wasn't good at school. But I really loved photography. I really loved taking pictures. And in class, we had Photoshop. It was like a, a very bleeding edge thing that they were just starting to teach us to play with. The technology wasn't really there yet, at least for what we had access to. But when I was 16, living with my dad, I'd gotten a copy illicitly of uh, Photoshop version 5, way back in the, in the 90s, Photoshop 5. I downloaded it, took days to get all the files. And, to, and then I had the you know, hours to decompress it all and put it together. But when I was done, I had Photoshop. And that was another moment of, I got to use computers to create something and, and express myself in some way. And I, I think a lot of my like, teen years, it wasn't driving towards career, at least not intentionally. I liked the idea of playing with computers. It didn't occur to me until later that I could actually use the computer to do something else. Most of my early jobs were tech support, putting computers together. Wow. That your years learning photography were also the start of your fascination with photography gear? Maybe. Both at the high school level and the college level, we used a Pentax K1000. That was the camera that they would give all the students. And I had to learn how to develop my own film and then use the little enlargers and little giant, use the enlargers to make prints of those. And uh, like always smelled like chemicals, always, always smelled like chemicals. Like learning all of that stuff was a lot of fun. And I, I was in love with the process of it as much as the creativity of it. And I, as, as a result, I never really got particularly good at one or the other. Also, like I said, just a terrible student. I, I sucked at school. But uh, as a kid, I would draw a lot or I would paint or I would, I always wanted to make something with my hands. I was always trying to get images from my head out on the paper or just like anything that I could do to make a thing. I loved making stuff. And so the, the photography was a chance to play with technical stuff and make things. And then computers were a chance to play with technology and make things. And so it all just kind of like, at my core, that's what I love doing. I love playing with technology and I love making things. Interesting. I'm curious about when this all started coalescing into, into something that you could call a career. But I think I know from talking to you that music came before that. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, I, I forgot to cover that. When I was 13, I got uh, my, my first guitar. I was terrible at it. And I didn't take, my mom didn't get me lessons or anything. It was just like going back a little bit. I remember telling my mom I wanted to learn how to play guitar because I had just discovered music. I had just discovered like Nirvana and Aerosmith and uh, Snoop and 
like the the idea of rock and roll, the idea of hip hop, it was all brand new to me. As a kid, my mom listened to like oldies and country music. I didn't know music was good until I was 13 years old or, or that music was cool. I just thought it was like something that old people did. It didn't click for me. So I, I said I wanted to learn how to play guitar. And she's like, oh, your dad plays guitar. I'm like, really? That's interesting. And then uh, my dad it was the first time I'd seen him since I was like three years old. Uh, he, he came out and he brought me my, my first guitar as a birthday gift when I was 13. A guitar and some some Garth Brooks tablature books. Here's how you play some Garth Brooks song, which, you know, fortunately, I grew up listening to Garth Brooks because my mom loved country. Uh, so at least I knew the songs conceptually. Uh, and then I'd go out and I'd buy a guitar magazine, Guitar World magazine. And they'd always have like in the middle these sections of here's how to play a couple of popular songs. I would sit in my room trying to figure it out. And I remember that first guitar, I couldn't even tune it because the gearheads were so rusty. This is an old piece of shit guitar. The, it was so rusty, you could barely turn them. And it wasn't until I got a, a crappy pawn shop Stratocaster copy for like 60 bucks that I realized that the problem, the reason it was difficult to tune a guitar wasn't because tuning a guitar is hard. It was because <laughs> the, that guitar was just a piece of shit. It, but I spent so many months and then years just when I had free time by myself, I would sit down and try to learn how to, how to play something else. Eventually, it started to stick. And eventually, I, I developed the, a little bit of skill. I didn't write a song. I didn't write my first song until I think I was 18. The guitar was just like a way for me to... Uh, it, I loved it. I loved playing, but I, I, didn't, I, I didn't have any training. I was very raw, very raw. Right. So not only how did you develop the skill, but at what point in your life did you went like, oh, I'm going to form a band? When, when did that idea started to coalesce within, within you? I was 18 and I, I, I wrote my first song and I, I, I realized, because the trouble with writing a song is you got one part and that sounds cool and you got another part and that sounds cool. How do you, how do you take one part and get to the next part? This was the thing I couldn't unlock in my brain. And I, I, whenever I would learn songs out of a book, I was always learning uh, like the cool riff or how to do a part of a song. It was very rare for me to learn an entire song. So I just didn't like, I didn't have any structure. I didn't have any discipline with it. And when I actually wrote an entire song for the first time, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus, done. Uh, like very, very pop music. Uh, the first time I did this, I, I realized like, oh, I could do this again. I immediately tried and, and wrote another one. And they were okay. Hmm. They were fine. They were not great, but they were okay songs. Once I had that and I realized like, okay, I have guitar parts and I know what I would sing here and I've written lyrics and like this song means something to me. It's capturing this, this moment in my life. And it was, uh, I think both of those songs were like right after my first real breakup with my first real girlfriend. I was 18 or 19. It was like capturing a moment for me and I sort of fell into, well, I was single and I didn't really have any friends and I was socially awkward and I was, you know, depressed by by today's standards if i went through that i would totally become an incel that's like <laughs> where i was mentally at, the, at that time the process of having gone through that made me realize that like i really wanted to do this this is i want this to be my job i want to make songs i want to be not a rock star but that sounds fun but like i looked up to the the kurt cobains the like all of like the the grunge years and the the mid 90s rock that's like where my heart was i loved all of that and uh, I decided I wanted to start a band. The problem was I was so socially awkward. I had so much social anxiety that even those first jobs I had doing tech support for cable internet companies, I had to work the night shift. I chose to work the night shift 
so that I could avoid seeing too many people. I didn't like leaving my home during the day. I would take the trash out after midnight so that I would have the lowest possible risk of, of other people seeing me. If I'm that terrified of other people, how could I possibly get on a stage and play a guitar and sing? And I remember that there was a, a moment where like the reality of it kind of hit me that I'm just never going to be who I want to be. I'm never going to get the things that I wish that I had because I only know how to talk to people on the internet. I don't know how to talk to people in real life. And if I ever want those things, if I ever want to be that person, that is a different person. I can't get there from here. I have to be somebody else. I have to figure out how to be somebody else. I sat down with a yellow legal pad and I made a list of all of the things about myself that I didn't like. And systematically, I just started going through and addressing them. I said, look, if I am ever going to be this person who can get up on a stage and play music and have the life that I want to live with friends and meeting girls, like if I ever want this stuff, if I ever want to make money, if I ever want to have a real life, I have to, I have to go through, I have to be able to cross these items off the list. And so I, that, that's what I did. I put a picture in my head of who I want to be, and I just started behaving the way I thought that person would. I had this friend, the, the one friend that I, I really still have from high school, John. He was the popular kid. Everybody loved him. Every, every click in school. He was popular with the jocks. He was popular with the theater kids. He was popular with the nerds. Everybody loved John. And I was the opposite. I had like, he was my only real friend. And it, it was, I have no idea how we even wound up being friends. I don't remember how we met, but we became friends. We were like best friends in high school. He was, even after high school, he was just kind of like this loud mouth, arrogant. He just had so much confidence that everybody loved him. He, he was dripping with confidence, which made him charismatic. And I misread that at the time as he was just an arrogant dick. And the, the way that this expressed in my mind was I thought like, well, I need to be more like that. Everybody likes him and he's, he's a jerk. So I need to be a bit of a jerk. And there's some truth to that for sure. But in those early days, I just started saying like, well, I'm going to behave confidently, arrogantly, even if I'm not confident. I'm just going to act that way and see what happens. And in those early experiments, I found pretty quickly, like everybody responded well to that. It just made it so much easier and I know now looking back, the trick was I was just, I stopped being, as far as other people were concerned, I just stopped seeming so insecure, which made me more tolerable. But at the, at the time it was like, well, how can I force myself? I'm going to force myself to act like I'm arrogant. I'm going to force myself to do things that make me uncomfortable. And one of them was I, I had a party one day. Uh, I, was, I was staying at my ex-girlfriend's dad's house for some reason. I was living in his basement and uh, he had down there a drum kit. And we had, I think it was a 4th of July party and some friends came over and a few of the friends played instruments and well, one guy jumped on drums and I had my guitar. Like we just sort of had like an impromptu band thing. And it was so much fun that I'd, I'd asked a couple of the guys like, let's start a band. Let's do this. I've got all these songs that I've written. I don't know what to do with. Let's do this. And we started my first band and it was like maybe a year in before I was actually able to get myself to get onto a stage. And it was absolutely terrifying. But I knew, taking the long way to say that I knew that I really wanted to do that for a living. I really wanted that to be my job. And I knew how unlikely it was, even in the best of circumstances. And if I ever had a shot at it, I just needed to be a different person. I needed to find a way to become the person who could do that. Moving along your, I don't know, artistic path, at, at what point did you form your current band? Current band? Well, I had the, the old band 
it's called Karma Ghost, named after a Flash cartoon that I really liked. Uh, <laughs> you remember Flash cartoons? Oh yeah. The uh, yeah, there's one I really liked. We I I'd reach out to the guy to ask if I could use the name for the name of a band. He was flattered. Had that for a couple of years, and we put out one record. It was very cheaply made. I think five grand we spent on the record. But it was like my first time in a recording studio, and I really loved the process, and it was a lot of fun. And then there was a whole. It's like that old chestnut of the bass player in the band was a woman. And she and I had kind of dated for like 10 seconds. Oh, no. And oh. she was like very into me, but like I had started dating somebody else. And so she started dating the drummer to try to make me jealous. And then they broke up and it was a whole thing. And uh, yeah, the band broke up because of that. Bass player left. And then almost immediately after that, the, the drummer just kind of disappeared on me. He borrowed some money and then disappeared, which is like the most cliche thing a drummer could do. Uh, but I had his <laughs> drum kit, still do. It's actually, it's, uh, it's in the office behind me. It's up on the stage. It's just the, the drums themselves are stacked up like a Christmas tree with lights wrapped around it. I've used it as a decoration for like the last 10 years. And then I, I went into another period where I just didn't really play music. There was a, a long stretch there. And I had all, kind of had all these amps and cabinets and all this fancy stuff for performing and recording. I never heard from the guy and I got like, I, I was in a relationship again and I kind of fully invested myself in that. And I just didn't have room in my life. Like I had, I went out and I got a real career in the tech industry and I had a job with responsibilities and I had to do this all day. And I didn't really have a place to put music. I didn't have a place to go perform. And I don't think I touched a guitar for a couple of years there. And, uh, there was a five year stretch on that relationship. And I, I'd say like three God, three or four of those years, I didn't even pick up a guitar other than to like move it, which is already pretty sad. The relationship ended and I went right back to my, my oldest friend, a guitar. And I, I tried to like get all of my thoughts and feelings and everything out that way. I was working in the tech industry at the time. I graduated from call center jobs to, I was a, a systems administrator for a little while. And then I became what's called a sales engineer, which is I was the engineer that would go along with the salesperson on sales calls to like make sure that the customer knew like how all the stuff would work and to make sure that we could actually fit our stuff into their stuff. And I really liked that job. Actually, I think it was the first job I ever had that I genuinely enjoyed. And when, when I found myself single and turning to a guitar for comfort, emotional comfort, I was at a period in my career where I was traveling a lot. This was before Wi-Fi on planes was a real thing. And so maybe once or twice a week, I'd have to fly somewhere. And I'd get on the plane and I'd sit there in silence with no internet connection, just thinking my thoughts. And I did a lot of my, uh, I wrote a lot of my lyrics that way, as I'd have the melodies in my head and I would, I'd kind of know what the point of, what the spirit of the song was. And I would spend the whole flight just writing lyrics. And I needed, I had a folder on my computer that, that I would put everything in and I needed a name for the folder. So like as a joke, because I was always writing when flying, I called the, I called the folder airplane mode. I can't believe that's the origin of the name. That's really, yeah, that literally, literally true. It was just cause I was always Holy on planes, crap. always, I only wrote lyrics on planes for the most part. And so it was just like, a, I needed a name. I needed a name for the folder. So I just called it airplane mode sort of stuck as a project. And then when I wanted to build it out, like. I think I was, uh, I had recorded something I was happy enough with that I wanted to put it up on the internet for other people to hear. 
And so I just kept using the name airplane mode as the name of the thing. I'm like, well, that's that's like basically the project name, basically the band name. Until I get a real band, I'll just keep using this. I remember I found a guy in like, like on Craigslist or something to play drums. And we never recorded anything, but we, you know, we would jam once a week, had uh, trouble finding a bass player, trouble finding anybody else in the band. And it just kind of fizzled out, never really went anywhere, but it was kind of fun. I wish, I wish that could have become something, but in, in Denver, like I just, I didn't even know how to go about looking for people who had any talent. And it wasn't until I came to New York and started reaching out again, looking for like, how do I find anybody to play with? I met through the tech industry, my friend, Joe Chaplinski another designer. We met at a conference actually in Denver, come to think of it. We met at a conference in Denver, even though I was living in New York. And uh, we talked about like, we, we both lived in New York city and uh, we should hang out sometime. And so we would like occasionally meet up, grab a drink. And I had suggested like, Hey, you, you play bass. Like we should play sometime. Let's just jam. And there was another friend who, who played drums a little bit, was taking drum lessons. And so the three of us got together and we, we booked a practice space here in the city and we just played once. And the, the drummer, like he didn't really have the room in his life to make it a regular thing. But me and Joe were like, let's, let's find a drummer and keep playing. Let's figure some stuff out. And we started sending logic files back and forth. We would record stuff and we'd just like kind of play layer tennis with the music. Our friend Ariel, who runs a company called App Figures, they were releasing their app and they wanted a piece of music for it, for the, like, the trailer for the app. And uh, I'm like, well, but we could do it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, but put something together for us. And Joe and I sent a track back and forth. It wound up becoming like we were, we did it for them initially, but we wound up thinking like this would be a, just like let's build that into a cool whole song, which we did. And it was the song on I think our, our second record called um, "I Said So," just like kind of a, a bouncy, fun riff rock kind of kind of uh, you know fun little song. We really loved the process of doing that. I'm like, well, I've got all these old songs that I had written, all these songs in this folder. Let's like start building some of this stuff out. And we, I remember we were making the music video. We had a music video idea for I Said So. We made a music video for it where we went around New York and we, we had people listen. We would hand them earbuds and have them listen to the song and just kind of dance to it. And we filmed them on our phones and then we cut it all together. And it wasn't particularly cinematic, but as an idea, it was neat. It was a perfectly good idea, just not very well executed because we didn't know what we were doing. But along the way, there was, uh, we met this, this girl, um, a young woman, Anna in Central Park, who was playing piano, like busking. And we walk over like, Hey, would you want to be in this music video? Like, you know, just pretend to be playing along with the song. She's like, yeah, sure. Why not? And so she does it and, uh, she's, you know, having fun with it. And she's like, Hey, and if you guys ever need a, a, a keyboard player, let me know. It's like, actually we do. We totally need a keyboard player. And so she wound up joining the band. And she said, I've got this friend, Patrick, who's a drummer. We should bring him in too. And so we did. And for, I don't know, a year or so, that was the lineup of the band. That was 2015, 2016 here in New York. We wound up swapping out the keyboard player because it just wasn't like, you know, things don't work out sometimes. Brought in our friend Agnes to play. But yeah, the, the band was, was born out of not even really seeking it out. It was much more organic than that. I guess I don't know how to seek out a band. I've, I've only ever done it by putting friends in a room and stuff just happens. Wow. All right. So when, oh God, I don't even know how to connect from there to all of your other creative endeavors. There's just so many. Well, yeah, it's like, it, it's a bunch of parallel threads all happening at the same time. Exactly. While I was working on music, while I was doing the band thing here in New York, 
I, 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 after the, the sales engineer job that I loved, uh, while I was still in Denver towards the end of that, I worked for a company called Jabber. They made instant messaging software for corporations. I, I loved that job, but the company got bought by Cisco who makes routers. And if you don't know who Cisco is, they, they make the internet basically, uh, which was a giant company and there were upsides to that, but it was a giant company and there's a lot of downsides to that. And I didn't do well in that kind of environment. In fact, because I had dropped out of high school when I was 16 years old because the social stuff I just couldn't, couldn't handle. I never went to college. And because I didn't have a college degree, uh, Cisco's corporate rules stated that I was already above the maximum pay grade for my level of education. Ooh. Which meant that they, they weren't going to demote me. They weren't going to decrease my salary, but I would never be able to get a raise. I would never make any more money unless I went to school for two years and got a degree, which is fucking insane. What a terrible policy. What a terrible, stupid policy. So you can imagine how invested I was in that job. I collected checks for a year and a half doing basically nothing because they didn't know how they didn't know where to put us on my team. They didn't know how to how to spend us. So I would mostly just listen in on people's WebEx calls and pretend to care, pretend to take notes. But they never really gave me anything to do. A year and a half of this, nothing interesting ever happened. Along the way, I had started a side project with my friend and next door neighbor, Jay Graves. We built a little goofy thing called Coat Hanger, which is Coat Hanger with no E, Coat Hang R. Uh, it was born out of, a, it was a joke from a, a little meetup thing we were at where it was like we had, when Twitter was started, the question of Twitter was, what are you doing? And there was a, a thing that came out for location called Brightkite, which was before Foursquare. Brightkite was all about where are you? And uh, I joked that, that what we need next is a, a social network for what are you wearing? And so we built Coat Hanger where you just post pictures of your clothes every day, which we did it as a, as a goof. It was a, it was a fun little side project that we, we would work on. And I was out at a conference. I was chatting with various tech industry people. Well, I was out there for work and a friend had introduced me to another friend who was at a conference. And so I wound up going over there and just kind of meeting some people, all these people in the, the Apple developer world who had been, you know, inspirations to me as like the people that, that made all the things that I loved, all the Apple software that I loved. One, one of the guys, I was talking to him about what he did. He said he, he makes iOS apps. I was like, oh yeah, we need an iPhone app. I guess it was still called iPhone OS at the time. So we need an iPhone app for Coat Hanger. Like maybe you could help us with that. And I didn't know any better. And he said, well, what's your budget like? And I'm like, I don't know. How much does one of these things cost? And I'm thinking like like $1,000, right? <laughs> how much could it possibly cost to make an app? Oh my God. So many red flags. Well, at the time, nobody knew. This was yep. like, this was 2008, 2009. Oh yeah. Very, very early days. And he looks at me and he says, we can start this conversation at like thirty to fifty thousand dollars, and I'm like, "Oh damn, no, <laughs> sorry, we don't have that kind of money. Uh, I don't have that kind of money. I've never seen that kind of money." He said, "Here's my advice: go buy a book. You and your 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 co-founder go buy a book on iOS app or an iPhone app development, and just learn how to do it yourself. You'll save a ton of money and you'll learn a lot." I'm like, "Okay, cool." We went and we we bought a book, and we read through it and I learned the design side because I've been playing with Photoshop forever and he was a programmer. So like these things weren't way out of our wheelhouse. It was just different tools. And we got really into it and we enjoyed it. We put our app out and I think it was like three or four months later, we put an app out 
and it got a little bit of attention and we made some friends. We did the conference thing. And then uh, some friends asked us to make an app for their thing, which we thought would be fun. And so we did. And then we did a couple more little projects. And then uh, one year after that guy said, go buy a book, almost a year to the day after he said that, he acquired our company. <laughs> and at, we're sitting there and there's a company called Double Encore. We're sitting there in the Double Encore conference room and we're signing the paperwork, the final thing. And he hands us the check. And uh, it was an aqua hire. He wanted us to come on and, and help run things. I sign it and I slide the, the piece of paper back to him, the contract saying like, this is it, this is done. No, no take backs. And I, I said, do you remember almost exactly one year ago, I asked you about making an app for us and you told me, go do it yourself. Go, go buy a book and learn how to do it yourself. And he's like, oh shit, I did. I'm like, thanks for the advice. I really appreciate it. <laughs> good advice, good advice. And it happened to be that my days at Cisco were numbered. My boss was starting to uh, clue in on the fact that I wasn't doing anything, but he also just, he, he was interested in getting rid of me because he thought that me not doing anything was going to reflect poorly on him. And so he was trying to throw me into the bus like it was all my fault. He never gave me anything to do. I was just forgotten. When I realized what he was doing, I went to HR and I said, here's what's going on. This guy's trying to throw me into the bus. Like, this is a problem. I, like, I don't have any room to advance in this company. There's no opportunities for me here. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to feel? And uh, at their suggestion, I, I filed like a formal um, harassment complaint so that it could be investigated, like exactly what was going on and how it should be handled. I was told to like take a week off with pay while they did this investigation. And it was like a couple days in, they called me and they said, how about this? How about we give you six months severance and you sign this thing saying you're not going to sue us and you just leave. And I'm like, dope. Yes. I will. <laughs> wow. I will take that deal. And uh, yeah, I, I took the deal. And literally the next day, my company was acquired because I'd been working on my thing. And it was like my background side project for the last year. Was, I needed something interesting to work on. And so, yeah, Cisco paid me to leave. And God bless them. I mean, Cisco, it's a, it's a great company. It just wasn't a good fit for me. And it wasn't that like they were awful jerks in that scenario. I mean, this, this boss kind of was, but it, just, it wasn't a good fit. And they, they did the classy thing. And they're just like, you know what? Here's some money. How about we all just leave as friends? And so, great. Yeah, like, let's do that. And uh, you know, it worked out well for me. They, they cashed me out for six months and my company got acquired. So like, for the first time in my life, I had a couple of bucks. And I'm like, neat. This is great. And I went and I bought like a real acoustic guitar, something that wasn't just a beat up piece of crap from a pawn shop and, and just, you know, wanted to, to maybe start the, the next big chapter of my life. And then the, my girlfriend at the time left right after that, a five-year relationship ended. Uh, suddenly I was kind of back to this place of, you know, something big happens and I, I turned to the guitar as a, as a source of comfort and traveling for work and, and, and writing songs and like that, that whole phase kind of like clicks back together there. Like, cause I was doing design work for a living now and I was single. I'd, I'd go, I'd get up in the morning. I would go to work every day. I would design things. I'd come home and I would just like sit there with my guitar being sad <laughs> until late, late in the evening. And then I'd go to sleep, I'd wake up, I'd go to work. And that was my, my cycle. These things start to converge again. Music comes back into my life just sort of as a necessity, uh, as, a, as a coping mechanism. The job and the music thing, it's, it's hard to, like they all, they all kind of tie together, but they're sort of separate parallel threads. 
very curious about how the hell this is going to collide with the YouTube world at some point. <laughs> because if this is a rhythm plot and I'm trying to like predict where it will be going, I will have no fucking idea. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, I couldn't have predicted. Like living it, I couldn't have predicted. Going back a couple of years, when I got my first Mac, I was, uh, I forget how old I was. It was 2005. I got my first Mac and I'd been like hardcore Linux guy. Hardcore. I had a three foot tall stuffed tux, the Linux penguin. No, that I will have never, ever believed that from you. Like I, yeah, I was like, I was, I was into that shit. And uh, like I would read Slashdot every day and ThinkGeek was like the coolest thing in the world. Wow. And, and then my computer was in a, a, a constant state of disrepair. I would have to run Windows to do anything or to play games. And then I'd go back to like getting, trying to get things to work with Linux. Linux was a hobby project that never ended. It was never in a state where I felt like my computer was, was working 100% when running Linux. And uh, a friend of mine, he bought a, like a 12-inch PowerBook as a secondary machine and fell in love with it. He, he's like, you got to try this thing. And I'm like, yeah, this is, this is cute. It's like a, you know, a colorful candy shell. And he's like, he opens up Terminal. And he's like, but like, it's Unix underneath the hood. Like All the things that you want are there, but the computer works. And I, I remember um, there's an, a, an attachment. There's a, sorry, a photo on the desktop. He runs this test for me. He has me do this. And he's like, all right, if you wanted to email that photo to somebody, what would you do? I'm like, well, I guess you'd open up your mail app and you'd create a new mail message. Then you'd go to like file and attach. But he's like, no, no, no. Forget everything you know about computers. If you wanted to send that photo to somebody, what would you think that you should do? If you wanted to put that photo into an email, just like logically as user experience, what would you think you should do? And I'm like, I guess I would drag it to the mail thing. Just like, I want this and I want to put it over here. And he's like, try it. And so I did. I just dragged the photo over to the thing that I wanted the, the photo to be in, mail, and it just worked. And my mind exploded. Like for the first time in my life, I saw that computers didn't have to be awful. <laughs> they, like <laughs> Real people could actually maybe use this thing someday. And all the years that I had spent making fun of Mac people, I suddenly felt like, oh, I'm the idiot. Shit. And so I went and I bought a 12-inch PowerBook and, and fell in love. And uh, like I do with anything, if I get into something, I read all about it and I want to learn all the things and I want to study who the characters are in that story and I want all the trivia. And so I read like folklore.org and all the, all the stories about old Apple and everything I could get about Steve Jobs and uh, like how the, the Mac was born, like everything, everything. All of the people in the Apple software community, like reading Daring Fireball, John Gruber was like my hero. That guy was like, just nobody was, was, was above John Gruber on the hierarchy of the coolest people in that community. And the people who made all these different apps. And so when I got to go to a conference one time, a friend who was already there, I was, like I said, I was, I was out there for business. He's like, come hang out with us. And I start meeting some of these people who made all this software I'd heard of. For me, it was like going to uh, an Academy Awards after party and getting to meet all these celebrities. It, it really kind of shook my world up. When my company got acquired and I got to kind of do that for a living and go around to conferences and speak and meet more community people and meet more of these people who made the cool apps and projects that I loved, I, I felt like I was just so lucky to even be in the room, but I didn't want to lose it. And I spent a lot of my time just making sure that I was, you know, being nice to the right people, just trying to make friends along the way, uh, which, which, you know, for the most part worked. And I, I got to do that for 
the better part of 10 years. Wow. As a designer and uh, the conference circuit, when I, when I first started designing apps for the, the iPhone, when I would go to these conferences, you would, you would started this by saying, what do you tell people? At the time, I was designing as a, as a hobby before my company was acquired. My company, by the way, was called Massively Overrated <laughs> because we thought that was funny. Uh, when, but before Massively Overrated was acquired and it was just like a goofy side project with my neighbor, if I went to a conference, like they don't need to know that I work for Cisco. That's not interesting. What's interesting is the thing that I'm working on. That's what they, the person would actually care about. Because then I can show them on my phone and we can, we can talk about it and they can give me notes or suggestions or, or whatever. So I would tell people I'm a designer. And this is where I learned that people will believe that you are whatever you say you are. Have we checked that Legal Eagle actually passed the bar? Has anybody checked on this? Is Dr. Mike a real doctor? Did anybody look into it? No, of course you wouldn't. If Devin says he's a lawyer, we just believe him. If Dr. Mike says he's a doctor, we just, we believe him. It's right there in the name, Dr. Mike. It's like, sure. Yeah. Why not? It's not up to us to go in and, and do the, the, the research there. People will just believe you. If you say that you're a YouTuber who makes videos professionally about low-end hardware, like, sure, I believe you. No one's going to challenge you on that fact. So when I would tell people I was a designer, they just believed me. And I started getting invited to speak at conferences. And I spent the better part of 10 years as a public speaker, which uh, go going back to can't leave my apartment to take the trash out because humans terrified me to getting on stages in front of hundreds or thousands of people. Uh, it dovetails nicely with the music thing because having spent time on stage for music made it even possible for me to think about this. Had some stage experience, got some more stage experience. After about a year, almost a year of working at Double Encore, working on sports apps, which weren't really exciting for me, it wasn't really working out. Me and the CEO didn't get along, and I wound up leaving to go to a company called Black Pixel up in Seattle. It was a group of, of other people that I had really respected in the industry and, and kind of had a little bit more of a, a foothold with the kinds of, of projects and kinds of people that I wanted to, to be involved with. Uh, I worked there for, for a while, I think a year and a half. They didn't love how much public speaking I did. They liked it in theory because it was good for the company, but they, they feared that it was me doing a lot of work to build my personal brand, which not wrong, but my, my argument was that my personal brand is good for the company. Like if I'm seen as being an expert, then me being here is good for the company, which sort of proved out because even after uh, I was eventually let go, years later, they asked me to come back as an evangelist, which I, I turned down for various reasons. But yeah, I was there for, uh, I think a year and a half. I was in Amsterdam for this conference, the next web I was speaking. And every day at the end of the thing, we'd, we'd head back to the hotel, we'd get cleaned up, whatever, and then we'd go out for the evening. And the girl working the desk, Charlotte, was a very cute. And I would, I would flirt with her whenever I'd, you know, coming out of the hotel. And it was all very innocent. Like she's the, the, the desk clerk at the hotel. There's like, of course, she's not actually interested in me. But I would, you know, flirt anyway. Like, hey, she come out with us tonight. Every, every day. And she's like, oh, no, I'm busy. I'm like, okay, sure. But she was like polite but cute about it. And then on the, the last day, we, after the conference, we just went out directly. There's like a dinner schedule thing. And we all go out. And then later that evening, we stop by the hotel before like going out to party. After dinner, we stop by the hotel. And the, the night guy, he's like, oh, I got a letter for you. And he hands me this letter. Uh, I'm like, who's that? Like, am I in trouble? Because I had uh, a friend of mine was crashing in my room and maybe shouldn't have been. I'm like, oh, am I in trouble? Hands me the letter and I open it and it's from, the, from Charlotte. 
oh shit and she's like yeah i was i decided i was uh you know i didn't have class or whatever tomorrow and i didn't have anything that i needed to do tonight so i was going to take you up on the offer i was going to come out with you but you never came back i waited you never came back and i had to get my the, the last train home oh and she says in the thing she says uh but maybe it's better this way because you're going to be leaving and what if we become lovers and like it's not going to work out i'm like who writes that that's amazing <laughs> incredible and then she put her email address at the bottom and I, I i couldn't read her handwriting so i'm running around amsterdam trying to get dutch people like what is this and we worked it out and i sent her a, i sent her an email uh i'm like send me your phone number i need to call you and so she does. And uh, I had what wound up being a $500 phone call. Sheesh. Yeah. I, I call her and I'm like, why didn't you like come back? She's like, I'm in like, I'm, I'm one city over. She's like, it would take me too long to get back there. And like the trains don't run this late, whatever. And she goes, but you're leaving tomorrow anyway. I'm like, no, I'm leaving the hotel tomorrow. I'm staying in town for another week with, with friends. Like a friend is, is out of town. I get the apartment. She's like, oh, I'm like, yeah. So like, dinner <laughs> and uh yeah we we went we spent that week together basically then i had to come back to the the us which was a whole other thing but i i talked to my my boss at, at black pixel saying like i need to i need to kind of chase this i need to go out there and find out what this is about and i was working remotely the company was in seattle i was in denver so it shouldn't have been an issue and at first they were like yeah that's fine and then at the last minute decided no you can't do this and I'm like, what are you talking about? And we had this argument and they're like, fine, do what you're going to do. And so I went and like, I was live tweeting the whole trip. Uh, and I, I remember this very clearly because I had tweeted that uh, Vanilla Ice was sitting in front of me on the plane, which was true. I get there and like two or three days later, I got an angry phone call from my boss who was pissed off that I, I had went to Amsterdam in secret and tried to hide it. I'm like, dude, I was tweeting about Vanilla Ice on my plane. Like I've done, if I'm keeping this a secret, I'm doing a terrible job sort of a long back and forth for a few weeks about how they felt about that. And then eventually they just decided they were so angry they fired me. I got to spend the summer just living in Amsterdam. And when I came back after what I would say was like one of the coolest adventures of my life was, was living in, in Amsterdam, unemployed, and things didn't work out with the girl like almost immediately because it turns out the idea was way more attractive than the reality. Uh, I think on, I, to a certain degree on both sides, but certainly for, for her, she was a little bit younger and, and the, the, the thought of like American boy, like visiting, like all of that was, was very romantic, but then like me actually being there and sort of the realities of like, okay, well, what do we do now? It didn't, didn't really click for her. Oh, and there's a problem with my Airbnb and it all happened on the same weekend. I got dumped, fired and thrown out of my apartment on, on the same weekend. And I just remember sitting uh, on a terrace with a couple of friends like, well, I really have nothing left to lose here, do I? Fuck it. And uh, the Airbnb thing got sorted out. They put me in a place, a different place in a cooler part of town, honestly. And uh, I got, you know, I had vacation and stuff banked so that I had a little bit of cash. I got paid out. And so I just decided to take the summer off and, and chill. When I came back, I went to a, a conference up in Canada and met up with a couple of friends. And we had talked about like, wouldn't it be cool to work on a project together? It was me and uh, Brent Simmons and John Gruber, the Daring Fireball guy, my hero. Uh, we'd become friends and, and uh, Brent had said, I'd love to work on something and I'd love to work on it with you guys. What should we make? And I had said, well, I, I've got a couple of like sketches for app ideas that I'd been working on while I was chilling over in Amsterdam. We could start with something like this. And I had one, John's a huge James Bond fan. So is Brent. 
I had an app sketched out called Vesper, named after the, the Bond girl from Casino Royale. And immediately we all loved the idea. We tweaked it. We changed some things. And we spent the next uh, year or so working on it. And when it came out, it was regarded as the first uh, iOS 7. It was the first iOS 7 app because we had gone to the, we had, we had tilted away from the skeuomorphic, everything looks like leather look of original iPhone apps. And we went like super, super flat and very minimal. And we shipped the app, I think, three days before Apple showed off iOS 7, which is when they went flat. And so we were seen as like being these geniuses who got there before Apple did, which good look for us and great for my resume. But it was in reality, it was a total coincidence. We worked on Vesper for a while and it wasn't enough to pay the bills. And at the time, I, I also had this podcast called Unprofessional that I was working on with my friend Lex Friedman, where we would talk to interesting people about anything except for their job. And when it became clear that, that I was going to need some way to make money right after I'd moved to New York, I wasn't making enough money from Vesper. I wasn't making enough money from freelance work. Uh, I was trying to like keep sponsors on the podcast. And uh, I, I wound up, in order to get sponsors for my show, I was helping my friends, like John Gruber, helping them book sponsors for their shows. We knew that there, we had had bad experiences with podcast networks in the past, and we didn't want to do a podcast network. And so my suggestion was, well, I can do this in the background. I'll create an LLC so that this is really papered as a, as a real company, and uh, like this will be my business, but it's not a podcast network. It's more like a foundation. Like it's not an umbrella that we all live under. It's like a background thing. And that way, if like the relationship ever gets severed, it doesn't have to be news. There's no drama around it. It just, you know, it's just severed. To that effect, like going back to the James Bond thing, I I wanted to give it a name, whatever it was, whatever this podcast thing that I made was, I wanted to give it a name that was so uninteresting, so boring that it sounded like something that James Bond would say as his cover story while he's undercover. So I called it Standard Broadcast. Which I thought would be just the most generic name you could think of. I cannot believe this is the origin story. And colloquially, just, just refer to it as standard. And uh, th I did this as a side project for a few years, just helping my, my friends book sponsors for their shows so that I could get sponsors on my show. And then it turned out to be pretty lucrative. It, it turned out that that was actually enough to sustain me in New York City. And I was a big CGP Grey fan, a huge CGP Grey fan. And I, I had gotten into watching a ton of YouTube when I was over in uh, Amsterdam. It was like I, I realized that there were more than cat videos, and YouTube just kept recommending more education stuff. And so, like Vlog Brothers and SciShow and Crash Course and Mental Floss, like all the nerd fighter stuff, ASAP Science, Minute Physics, CGP Grey, like all of the like I just loved all of it. And I realized through Twitter that Gray was a, a Daring Fireball fan, a John Gruber fan. And so I'd reached out to him to join the beta test for Vesper, which he joined. And then he and I kind of stayed in touch after that. And I wrote something once about how my job with booking sponsors, my job was not to put sponsors on the show. My job was to keep the sponsors from ruining the show. And he, he liked that. And he's like, I'd love to work with you. And so signed him as another podcaster for uh, Hello Internet. And then that went on for a while. And he, he eventually said, like, I'd love you to have you work on the stuff for the videos too. And then introduced me to, to some more YouTubers. And then like all these people that I loved watching, I sort of one by one got to get connected with them through VidCons and things like that. I went to VidCon Europe, the first VidCon Europe in Amsterdam. It all goes back to Amsterdam. 
I went to VidCon Europe in Amsterdam and met up with a couple of new kids who had started doing YouTube stuff that I was working with, like kind of nothing, nobody channels, but like I was willing to take a, a risk. Like it wasn't, wasn't hard work and they seemed like good guys. Uh, this guy, Sam, he had a channel called Wendover Productions and this other guy, Brian, who had a channel called Real Engineering. They were like, they were babies. Their channels were nothing. They were tiny, but you know, happy to work with them. Along the way, I think it was like 2014. I had wanted to become a YouTuber too. I had a, a channel called Better Elevation for a year or two, which at the time I was looking at like CGP Grey or Crash Course or whatever numbers. And I, I thought that like, if I didn't get hundreds of thousands or millions of views on a video, I was a total failure. And so me, three or four videos in, only getting 30 to 60,000 views per video, I, I thought it was a flop and I Oof. abandoned it. If I knew then what I know now, oh my God, I would be on such a different trajectory. Uh, yeah, so I, I just scrapped the channel. Like I stopped making videos because I felt nobody was watching. I felt 50,000 people was nobody watching. How insane is that? I had set my sights so high that I thought that was a failure. When I started working with these guys, like it, I thought it would be fun you know, doing stuff with more YouTubers, like good money in it. And I, I was spending all of my time at this point just focused on music. Like this was a, the standard stuff was like a five hour a week side project. All of my real time was spent writing songs, recording, rehearsing with the band, going out, trying to book shows, playing shows. So when I went out and met with uh, Sam and Brian for VidCon, like we hung out, like we went bowling. We would wander around the city, getting into trouble. Uh, just had a great time in Amsterdam. But we noticed that the, the big name creators wouldn't really give us the time of day. All these people that we looked up to, like I remember having one meeting, one like coffee shop meeting with those guys. And then the rest of the time, they were like behind the velvet rope in the VIP section of the creator lounge, like where they, they wouldn't have to even see us. Didn't see those guys at all, except for that one meeting. And I kind of like, well, that, you know, that's that. In the tech industry, I had, I had become fairly well known after doing that for 10 years. And I had a, a pretty good status of things. And I'd, I'd made good strategic friendships, one might say, and I was fairly well known. And in this, to like be on the other side of it was like, well, that kind of sucks. There was a, a science and education meetup. And it was like all these guys, uh, Simon Clark, Michael Aranda, like all these sci tubers in the conference center in this like banquet room, all sitting around at tables. And like there were enough of the YouTubers sort of spread out at all these tables. And as people came in to meet up, each table had a semi popular creator sitting at it and then fans. And what I noticed pretty quickly was that all of the fans were super engaged, but so were the creators. The creators were just as happy to be there chatting with the fans as the fans were. And everybody had a channel. All of the fans were, you know, at some stage of trying to make content themselves. And so it became more of like a peer conversation. And everybody's like, oh, what's your channel? Like, what do you do? This sort of stuff. And I'm like, well, I've, I've got music videos. And so, oh, let me see. And then, you know, show people thing and like you make friends. And I just saw how respectful the creators were of their audience and how much they seemed to genuinely love their audience. And I remember that after the meetup, as it was ending, we were walking out and I, I was standing next to, um, oh, I forget her name. She did uh, crash course physics. I apologize. I can't remember her name. We were walking out and this kid comes up and he's like 13 years old and he's everything you want a 13 year old nerd to be like a little chubby pimple faced glasses wearing like loose fitting clothes. He's like everything you want a nerdy 13 year old boy to be, and maybe not even 13. He may have been younger, but just like this kid. And he runs up and he is so excited to meet her. And he's like, oh my God, like crash course physics. I love it so much. 
and it's gotten me through school. And now my, my teacher, my science teacher, like I convinced him to start showing it in class. We're watching it together now. And I really hope I can get more people to watch because it, it made physics so exciting for, and he's like breathlessly excited. It's as if he just met, uh, you know, his, his absolute idol. He, he goes on for a few minutes and she is absolutely engaged talking to this kid. And the dad comes up and he like pulls the kid away. Like, I'm so sorry. Like, thank you so much for your time. And she's like, no, 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 this is, it's my pleasure or whatever. They walk away and she like needs a minute to collect herself. And she's got like tears in her eyes. I'm like, are you all right? And she goes, yeah, it's just, it's, it's so powerful to know that what I do means so much that it can affect somebody like that. And I realized watching this, that like everything that I had built, all these sponsor connections, all these tools that I had for, for helping these, you know, podcasters who had plenty of money, uh, get access to more money. All of that could probably be better spent on a community like this. And I felt like I had the right tools and the right ingredients to build something that mattered. And I, I started kicking around in my head, like, what do I do? How do I get there? Okay. So now we can get to the fun part, because this is all the origin story for Standard and what for our entire community. But I think a lot of people that are going to tune in on this are going to want to hear about Nebula and how this whole idea started to coalesce into something, especially considering that where we're recording right now and looking at where Nebula is right now, I have this sneaking suspicion that a lot of people might hear this in the future, just in the sense of, wow, if they only knew, right? So I, I was I was there, so I, I obviously have part of the story, but I, but I want to, to hear you say it, how Nebula came to be. Well, uh, a quick half step back. For a while, I was trying to build something for musicians. I, I had this idea that all of these sponsor contacts, my band, Airplane Mode, we were, we were making decent money making sponsored music videos because I had all these sponsor connections. And I thought, wouldn't it be neat to make something like that for just musicians, a service, uh, a, a community of, of musicians doing stuff like that, making content on the internet. And it turns out that musicians have this very rock and roll attitude of if you make money, you've sold out. And so all of my, my band friends in New York kind of scoffed at the idea. They liked the idea of money. They just didn't like the idea of earning it. Like if somebody <laughs> just threw money at them, they'd take it. But earning money, then you've sold out. Uh, and that, that was a lot of fun. In fact, at one point, the, the version of this that I was going to make, I was going to pivot standard into focusing on musicians. And I was going to bring in um, Damien Kulash, the lead singer of OK Go. He was going to wow. come in as co-founder. We we're going to build this thing together. And uh, I, I just couldn't get musicians to care about making money. so wind up scrapping it. Uh, well, not, I, I say scrapping it. it. It was sort of happening at the same time that I, I met a bunch of people in the science and education community and realized that the tools I was working on should, would be better spent here on people who actually wanted the help and pivoted to that. I remember having a conversation with, with Hank Green up in Missoula talking about like what the future of this thing could be. And I, I came back and I had all these notes and I, I sort of built a, a real big picture vision for what standard could eventually one day become. And having that trajectory, like like before earlier in life, making a list of all of the things that I wanted to change, I sat down and made like, here's a giant list of all of the things that that I I wish standard could be. Now, how do I get there? And uh, set about that path in some ways that are a little bit secret sauce, but mostly just by building relationships. And after uh, was it a couple of years of that, building this community slowly, very thoughtfully, putting together a group of smart creators who were making good, empathetic, thoughtful content. We kept getting approached 
by companies who wanted to license the content. One was um, NBC was launching a thing and they wanted to get a bunch of like independent content creators stuff on there. But the terms were kind of weird and they were being really uh, shirty about what the thing was. It turns out it was Peacock. So we'll see how well that goes. But we had passed on it because like none of the creators were excited and I just didn't like where the contract was or the way they would treat the content. And then uh, Vimeo had reached out and they, they had said, we'd love to use our over-the-top streaming service to build a streaming service for this one creator. I won't say who, but like they had one creator in mind. And my, my response was like, so you're going to get like a video a month and that's a streaming service? Like, what is that? Who would pay for that? That's dumb. That's Patreon with extra steps. No, like you couldn't do that. The only, like none of our creators, because they even asked, they said, well, who on your roster would be a good fit for putting something out at a higher frequency? And it's like, these are all, these aren't vloggers. They just, nobody here is doing content with that kind of frequency. The only way that a service like this would work is if you did something with all of the creators. Oh shit. What if we did something with all of the creators? Huh? And so we looked into how the Vimeo stuff worked and it wound up not being a good fit. We started down the path, but the trouble was that they wanted to own the credit card relationships. And I know from my background in the tech industry that part of the magic of iTunes, of the ways in which they were able to, of course, correct the music industry and the way that the app store works, the magic was that Apple had your credit card and you just had to hit one button. You hit a button, maybe type in your password, and now you own that song. Now you own that app. It became so easy. So having uh, Vimeo own the billing relationship for our customers in perpetuity meant that we'd be tied to Vimeo forever, and we didn't want that. So we went looking for other options and wound up building it with somebody else. But I remember going back to the creators. We have the, the Slack, as you know, that we all hang out on. I remember going into the room and saying like, hey, what if we did this? What if we built a streaming service like for ourselves? And people talked about Vessel and how that failed after a couple of years or got acquired and then disappeared. This had been tried before and it never really worked. So if we did something, we'd have to be really careful. Like, okay, well, what would need to change? So if we're going to do something, it has to be kind of low key. It can't share the name of the community. So we can't call it standard, which is a bummer because everybody calls us standard TV anyway. Wouldn't it have been nice to just like, then standard TV is actually the name of the thing. The domain <laughs> name is, we've already got it. It's perfect. Eh, uh, Naval likes Akeka's name. I really like it. Always liked it. <laughs> it was decided sort of democratically that this should be a separate thing. And if it fails, it should fail silently. Like we don't want to put something out in the world and try to make a big deal out of it. Then it goes nowhere and we all look like assholes. Like, okay, so we give it a new name and we need to build it sustainably enough like we can use these over the top services, over the top streaming services to like keep it low cost. Like we're not paying for bandwidth. We're not paying for servers, this kind of a thing. Like we just pay a flat fee for the service and we could keep that. It was cheap enough that we could keep it going forever. If Nebula never went anywhere, like as a, as a baseline, we could afford to pay for the, the servers, the, the service uh, forever. And nobody would ever know, need to know that it like completely failed. It could just, you know, silently fade out in the background. And everybody's like, yeah, okay, maybe, but nobody was convinced. And so I sat down and I wrote a very long, I think I sent it out as a PDF. Like, here's my nebula plan. Here's how I think we should do this. And it laid out like, here are the benefits. Here's what we might end up becoming someday. I should go back and read it. I wonder how right I was. 
or how wrong I was. I wonder, I just wonder the ways in which reality diverged from that original plan. I wrote this whole thing out and I sent it out to the creators and I expected lots of pushback, lots of not arguing, but, uh, you know, spirited debate. And uh, the way that, that I run standard is very open and very transparent, very democratic on the inside already. Like anything we do gets heavily discussed by the creators because at any moment, if I do something dumb or something evil, the clients could all bail on me. So I'm in a position where the best thing I can do to keep the, everything above board and keep everybody in the loop is do it all out in the open, which leads to tons of great discussion. I've always really liked doing things that way. So I figured I'm going to need maybe six months to build up the political capital in this conversation to convince everybody. Like, I'm going to really have to work for this. So I write up the document. This is like my first salvo. This is the first step on a journey, a long journey of, I'm pretty sure this is a good idea and we can make something cool, but there's, here's my first step in this journey. And I sent out that email and immediately everybody's like, yeah, we have to do this now. How soon can we get started? And I'm like, Jesus Christ, I was not prepared for this. I was not prepared for everybody to be this hyped up. Like I kind of oversold it. I'm like, damn. And so we, we hired somebody. We didn't want to take anybody off the engineering team. We hired an engineer just to work on this in the background. Eventually, it was far enough along that we needed a, an Apple person. So we, we brought in an iOS developer because we figured going iOS first would be better because it's my background. And I, I had knowledge and context there that I didn't have on the Android side. Figured like optimized for success here. We just kind of like built the thing in the background as a thinking the, the same thing. Like we're going we're gonna to throw the resources we have at it, which wasn't much. We could afford you know a couple of people to work on it, but that was it. We figured we'd throw some resources at it get it launched. And hopefully if we were lucky, it would make enough money. We'd get enough users that we could continue paying those two people and not have to keep paying it ourselves. We just wanted Nebula to, to be able to afford two employees. That's all we needed for it to be a massive success. And when it launched, like right out of the gate, I think we, in the first couple of months, we had maybe two or 3000 subscribers, which was like, yeah, just, just enough to cover one employee. And we had enough runway that by the time we got to the part where we had to worry about it, then the second employee would be covered by revenue. And we're like, great, this is perfect. Everything that we wanted, like it's out there. Uh, you know, people seem interested in it. We don't have any marketing budget right now, but people just hearing about this thing from creators talking on Twitter or whatever, it's already getting some traction. That's pretty cool. We were perfectly happy with it. Nothing ever needed to change. We had set out to make a little streaming video service of our own. And we accomplished that. The end. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm giggling on the inside. Uh, the end until, uh, so we, our biggest sponsor at, at the time, I don't think they're our, they're our biggest, but they're actually a, a fairly new sponsor at the time, our friends at CuriosityStream. And I reached out to the guy running their influencer marketing stuff, Michael. And I, uh, we had a great relationship. We had a great relationship because they had tried doing YouTube sponsored stuff before and it didn't really work out for them. And I begged, convinced them to just give us a trial run. And they did. And it was so successful that he got called into his boss's office, the CEO's office, demanding to know why they weren't spending more on YouTube. And he's like, because everything failed and you told me to stop. And he's like, well, whatever this standard thing is, put in as much money as you can. And we're like, neat, cool. And so we had a great relationship with them. And I called him up and I said, look, we're, we're talking about building a little streaming service of our own. I don't think it competes with you. Like, here's what it is. Here's what we're thinking about. But I, I want you to know what we're doing. And I want to know if that's going to be a problem. And they talked internally and came back and said, no, no, that we don't see this as a conflict. We see these as sort of complementary in a way. 
So like, yeah, you, you have our blessing. And if, if you want any advice or anything along the way, feel free to hit us up. We're happy to chat. I'm like, dope, great. And we went on with our lives. We released the thing. And then I was down there uh, because Michael was leaving. He was leaving the company and, and handing the reins off to somebody else. And so I went down to just outside of DC where Curiosity Stream's office is in Silver Spring and met up with Michael. We, we grabbed dinner and something, he was talking about the venture capital round that they had just raised. It was like another hundred million or something and how they were looking for interesting things to do as a company and how that affected the budget for sponsored things. And I thought, huh, interesting. And I went in the next morning into the Curiosity Stream meeting and I pitched the dumbest idea I could have possibly pitched. Like I, I like to think that when, when we were talking about Nebula as a possibility, if I had a boss, they would have said no, that project would not have been approved. And in fact, my co-owners at the time hated the idea. They did not think it was a good thing for us to be investing time or money or energy into. They thought it was going to blow up on our faces and cost us clients and it would never make any money because you'll never make any money sitting in front of a computer all day. You'll never make any money in streaming video. I did the dumbest thing possible. I went into Curiosity Stream and I said, how about this? How about we do a bundle? And then every time one of our creators promotes Curiosity Stream and a customer signs up, they get Nebula included for free and you give us a cut of the revenue for each of those users. And much to my surprise, the response was interesting. How would that work? We spent the whole day talking through it and spitballing ideas and talking details. And we're like, we got something here. Like everybody's really excited. I left the room and we're like, we got to make this happen. We just got to like sort out the contract. And it was maybe a, a few weeks of working with their council, getting the contract terms nailed down. And a lot of like, well, no, we can't do that because, or no, we can't take that risk because. And every time the Curiosity Stream people, when I thought they were going to push back or kill the deal over it, they'd go, oh, okay, that makes sense. We understand your position. Like, we want this to work. We'll make it work. And they gave us like really everything we asked for. In the end, I don't feel like we had to compromise very much on that deal at all. It was supposed to be a trial run. We we're just going to see how it went. Like we built out a little API so that whenever one of their customers signed up, it kicked it over to us. And it was immediately such a huge success that nobody on either side could believe the numbers we were saying. We had to check things on both sides. We had to check the numbers over and over and over again, redoing the math. Like this is not possible that we're seeing numbers like this. That relationship has been going very, very strong ever since. I've, I can't say enough great things about Curiosity Stream and how much they've believed in us. We really couldn't have, have done this without them. Nebula wouldn't be Nebula without them. They're like, in a weird way, Nebula was built as a joint venture between Standard, the company, and Standard, the community, the creators. And that's why at the end of every month, the profits get split 50-50. If Nebula ever gets bought by, you know, I don't know, Yahoo or something, for a billion dollars, then half a billion dollars goes to the, the creators. It's a 50-50 it's a split. It's a joint venture in our eyes. But in a lot of ways, CuriosityStream is the third partner in that equation. They don't own any of this. I mean, maybe someday, maybe they'd want to buy in, but uh, yeah, they, don't, they don't own a piece of this. They just do it because the deal really does work for them and they believe in what we're doing. What, <laughs> if we can talk about it, what are you <laughs> looking forward the most for the future of, of Nebula and just all your creative endeavors? Well, I've always seen standard as a very complicated, long game con to get cool stuff for my band. <laughs> Still. That's, yeah, that's the, the spirit of, of everything. Everything I built here is because I get cool stuff for my band. And it's true. Like we have a stage in the office 
that I get to play on. Um, now that we work with some musicians like Mary Spender, Fender sends me guitars. It's a, it's great. It's a blast. I get all kinds of cool stuff. And uh, along the way, I get to help a lot of other creators too. And that's when I say that, get cool stuff from my band. I don't just mean like I want cool stuff and screw everybody else. What I mean is I want to build all of the tools that I as a creator wish that I had. I wish that I had a way to build a relationship with Fender. I wish that I had good analytics tools that could show me what I was doing right, what I was doing wrong. I wish that I had a network, a community of other creators who were doing the same kinds of stuff as me so I could learn from them and build shared experiences and forge relationships that will last me long, long after the perceived immediate shelf life of my videos. Or if I may add also there, a relationship with a company that makes high-level production equipment and gives creators the training to actually use it. And I say that as someone who is right now surrounded by a lot of equipment that I have received that way that I've been using for months now. Yeah, there's there's so many little things that we've we've gotten along the way. Our relationship with Black Magic is we build out the Better Elevation project. Um, we've built our own production company. We have our own merch company. All of these things are things that like as a creator, I would want. And so when, it, when I say it's all about getting cool stuff from my band, what I mean is like me as a creator, what would I want? What do I want? Everything that we do is built democratically. It's built with fairness in mind, with equality in mind. We tend to favor creators who are a little bit on the smaller side because bigger creators tend to be a little bit more diva. And not, not a universal truth, but you know, you know. Yeah. You know, we prefer to work with a group of people who are kind of invested emotionally in making the world better, making the community better. A byproduct of that is that there's a spirit of not competition. This isn't a zero-sum game. It's a spirit of what can we build together. And it's, it's been really cool to watch that play out. But in doing so, we get to change the rules a little bit. With all of these tools, all of these resources, and we get to like, it, it perpetuates itself. All of these are like really smart, thoughtful people who are easy to work with. There's no jerks here. We've been very, very fortunate that the, the bad or toxic or questionable elements of the community, they kind of find their way out. And as a rule, we don't have to work with assholes, so we don't. And we find constructive ways to end those relationships uh, whenever possible. We found ourselves in a position where it's a lot of like-minded, empathetic, interesting, thoughtful, creative people building stuff together. It means that you know, someday I'll get to focus more and more on the creative side of what I'm doing. But getting to help creators build things that then in turn help me make the things that I want to make, like that feels like the perfect version of the machine to me. And looking at what am I looking forward to with Nebula or any of the other pieces of this, I can't predict what's going to happen next. I mean, part of my job as CEO is knowing what's going to happen next. But like, let's be honest. If I had a boss and I pitched Nebula, it would have been shot down. Mm -hmm. If I'd gone to a boss and said, I'm going to go to our biggest sponsor and tell them to start bundling our stuff in and paying us for it, I would have been fired. That's a dumb idea. You shouldn't do that. I mean, ostensibly it is. I knew what I was doing going in. I, I took a calculated risk and it paid off. But from the outside, like those things really shouldn't have worked. Nebula shouldn't have worked. I don't think Nebula could be done again. I really don't. The key ingredient, the magic of it is the community, this particular group of people working together to build something. And so what I'm excited about is what do we build next? Nebula's not done and it won't be for a long time, but as a, as a project, it's, it's up and running. And I have a team of extremely smart, extremely capable people working on it. 
literally around the clock now. We have employees in Europe and Australia, so you know, we, we get full full coverage on that. And I forget how big the Nebula team is now, 15, 20 people between engineering and support staff and everybody. Like it's a very well, not very large, it's still small by startup standards, but it's like, you know, it's a capable team of people building a thing. And it's growing fast enough. We just hit 200,000 paying subscribers. I say just, we're actually higher than that now. We mm-hmm. have not disclosed what the new number is, but it's higher than 200. We have enough growth trajectory that we can hire at a fairly steady clip. The Nebula side of it is extremely healthy. The standard side of it, extremely healthy. There's no part of this company that's bleeding money. And so all of these resources that we made, like going back to the very early days of standard, it was the podcasters, I was making enough money when I've signed a couple of YouTubers, I was making enough money that I could hire my first employee, our COO. And then we made enough money that we could hire another employee. And then that was making enough money to hire another employee. And the more we've grown, and this is how business works, right? Optimistically, that revenue keeps going up, you keep hiring people. This is the cycle we're in. And as we build out things like Nebula or a production company, they become profitable and we can reinvest that back into building more cool toys, more cool products and services that we ourselves wish we had. And so I have to look at what do I wish I had now? What do the other creators wish they had? We're doing stuff like we're building out um, syndication services now, which will be by all accounts, extremely revenue positive. And we're going to turn that around. We're going to reinvest that back into building more cool tools and more cool resources for independent creators. Part of what we're looking at now is what can we build that affects people beyond just our immediate bubble? Like we're signing plenty of creators. We signed five new creators this week, but I want to keep our growth kind of slow because we're at 125 now. If we speed things up too much, we run the risk of spoiling the broth so to speak. I I think of it like making a soup. You put one ingredient in at a time and you see how it tastes. Then you add another ingredient and you check and another ingredient. Because if you dump it all in at once, you just can't predict what's going to happen and you can't control what's going to happen. And if it goes bad, you can't do anything to recover it. So we built this community slowly over the last four and a half years, almost five years, much to our benefit. So I don't want to get too crazy with growth, but I do imagine that there's got to be, I say this as if I don't have something in mind, there must be something we could do that would help the entirety of the creator community. I'm really excited thinking about all of the things that we can spend our tools, our resources, our community, our collective thought power, our collective empathy on that could benefit everybody. My background coming from, I I grew up watching TV. I, I was raised by the television and like all of my science knowledge is not from school. It's from like Bill Nye, the science guy or uh, the Discovery Channel, like watching things, watching documentaries and, and getting excited about it. I loved science. I, I loved space, but it wasn't really a scholastic endeavor for me. Everything I learned, I learned through video and growing up with in my teen years with the internet as my primary form of communicating with other people. Most of the things that I know how to do now, whatever I studied for photography in school, it's all lost. What I know about taking pictures or using a camera or shooting video, all of those skills I gained from the internet. Everything I know about music production, I learned from the internet, a lot of it from watching videos. So to now be in a position where I'm helping the people who, who make educational or education-ish content, it's a real full circle thing for me. As a high school dropout who learned everything I know from the internet, being able to uh, help people put more content on the internet that can be learned from, like doing this with standard, doing this with Nebula. That's like I feel like I'm doing my part a little bit, and I'm I'm mostly excited about the ways in which we can shift 
the idea of education, the idea of of what makes somebody more thoughtful or helps them develop skills away from the pre-internet models and into something that's a little bit more you know, uh, modern and will stand the test of time. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Dave, and recording all the details of your story. This, this has been... <laughs> Every last detail. No, I, I genuinely miss talking with you. This was amazing. I figured I would try to give you too much rather than not enough. On that front, I think you have succeeded. This is amazing. It's really good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Great. Look forward to uh, seeing the uh, five-part release of this episode. <laughs> I miss podcasting. I miss, because uh, especially now, this is a kind of an ad hoc setup I did here, but I'm just sitting in a chair with a microphone in front of me, staring out the window and chatting. I might have to kick up the podcast thing again. Yeah, this this was this was an adventure. Thought it was. This is a great show, by the way. I love what you're doing with this. Getting to hear more about the people who make the things you like, because getting getting a window into the life of Patch from Tier Zoo or whatever, like following him on Twitter or like you know hearing him here and there, it's one thing. But to like get a sense of where they're from, you don't get. There's no good mechanism for that. There's no good natural mechanism for that. Like for all of the things that I'm a fan of, I'm still just a, a total fan of all of these creators. I love watching a Patrick Willems video. I mean, partially because I'm in them now, but like I like his videos are just so much fun to watch or watching an Alt Shift X video or Cinema Wins or like I could just rattle off creators all day. There's nobody here that we work with that I don't truly enjoy watching. I wish I had enough time in my day to watch everybody all the time. But like being a fan of this content, being a fan of these creators, it's really cool that there's a, a place now where I can learn a little bit more about the people like where they're from. Thank you for doing this. This is really cool. Um, I'm glad. From my side, every single person in interview radically changes my perspective of them. I feel emotionally, I kind of get where everyone that I have talked to is coming from now. And that includes you. Like this is, I, I would say change. And I would probably you were wondering if it's like better or worse, but it's better in general. It's more complete. I think I have a better understanding of where you come as a person. And that that is truly amazing. People become people and not just these little vignettes. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. 